Okay, today we're talking about politics. You ready for this? Okay, here we go. In every election, I watch TV or whatever, and everybody goes that says the same thing. This is the most important election of all time. You ever hear that? This, this one, and every time they say it, I think about that time that Abraham Lincoln beat John C. Breckinridge. <laughs> and the issue was, should we have slavery in America? I feel like that was probably the most important election in American history. So anyway, it's kind of hyperbole, right? But every time we go to the ballot box or whatever, it does kind of feel like that, doesn't it? This is the most important election of all time. Uh, the political situation in America is, um, I don't want to say the most divided we've ever been because of what with the Civil War and everything, but besides that maybe, it's, we're pretty divided as a country. People are not getting along. Now, I have to say this about church and politics. You just, the pastor get up and he's talking about politics. Let me tell you the 501c3 rules. That's a nonprofit rules. I am not allowed to tell you how to vote. I can't get up and be like, vote for this guy, vote for this measure, because we're a nonprofit. We're not allowed to be political. But what I can help you do and what I should help you do and what churches should do a better job of is helping people build a framework in their life that influences everything, including political engagement. And so the problem is now everybody gets all antsy when we start talking about politics because of how divided, especially since 2016, the 2016 election, I feel like, really divided this country. And then COVID and the rules and regulations and all the stuff about COVID really divided the country. And what I've noticed is there's a couple of different kinds of church when it comes to politics. So the first type of church is obsessed with politics. And all of you just thought about somebody on the other side of the political, political spectrum from you. Okay, but this happens on both sides. So on the right, you have people, these churches, who are obsessed with politics. And like a while ago, for instance, I um, had this video series online that was about church and politics. And I was curious what this guy was going to do, right? And the entire lecture series was Why God Loves America thinks capitalism is the God-ordained economic system and why you should only vote for Republicans. A guy made it like, I don't know, a few lectures into this thing and then I turned it off. Um, or like there was a pastor in the South who was fired um, because in a sermon he said he didn't vote for Trump. It was all over CNN. I remember this on the news. Um, and this guy, that's all he said. He didn't say, you know, in a conservative, mostly conservative church, he said, I didn't actually vote for Trump and they fired him over it. Okay, but it also happens on the left, where you have churches that are obsessed with things like liberation theology, and they talk about um, political issues of justice and things that are important, but they talk about like it's the center of church. And I see that a lot too. And we have more of those churches in San Francisco than we have more of the, the right-wing kind of churches. So that's the first type of church. They're obsessed with politics. Then there's some churches, they only talk about politics when it suits them. So there are, like um, Toby from Christ Church, um, did a bunch of reading on this. He was telling me about this. That basically, um, during the revolution, what happened was churches were stirring everybody up to revolt against England. And most of the, um, the foundation for the revolution came from pulpits to the point where King George, the mad King George, he didn't call it the American Revolution or the War of Independence. You know what he called it? The Presbyterian War. Right, because it was very much like a lot of Presbyterians in the Northeast were really stirring up their people. But then a few years later, in all of those same churches, 
those same pulpits refused to get involved in the abolitionist movement because we aren't political institutions. And so when it suited them to revolt against England and everything, these churches got very political. But then when it came time to protecting human rights and they were talking about slavery, these churches went, oh, that's not us. As soon as it was a different people group that was, we needed politics to help a different people group, all of a sudden they go, oh, that's not us. So there are churches that do this today. They get up and they, they'll talk about certain issues and they don't talk about other issues. And it's really interesting what issues they pick, you know, and depending on what part of the political spectrum churches are on, they do this. Okay, the third type of church is the kind of church that we're probably more tempted to be, which is the church that just never talks about it. Right, we just don't talk about politics. Um, one of the reasons, though, that we should talk about politics is um, church is supposed to help you build a worldview and a framework that helps you navigate all of life. And um, we should be engaging in politics. We should be engaged. You know, we're, we're human beings and part of our society. And so church should help you do that. But a lot of churches just say, I'd rather not fight. And so here's this massive thing that's a part of all of our lives, and it affects all of our lives. And then church says, well, we, for whatever reason, I don't want to offend people. I don't want to lose my 501c3, um, although I don't think that has ever happened, actually. They've, like, they've never enforced that, really. There are crazy political churches, you know. So I think we're safe talking about politics today, right? Some of you might be wondering now, okay, John's talking about politics. Is he going to get up here and he's going to give us all his political positions? What side of the aisle is John coming from? And I've also never told any of you how I voted. And so I'm guessing that a lot of you are very confused about which side of the political spectrum I'm coming from. And that's good because, you know, is he one of mine or is he one of theirs? And the answer is no. Okay, here we go. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you how I vote or how I think, because that's not what we're doing today. What I want you to see is that our divided society, where we think of everybody as he, either he's one of mine or he's one of those, is really not cool. And it's really not biblical. And um, I, was, I listened to a bunch of sermons and stuff as I was prepping this. I spent a long time prepping this sermon, a couple weeks, more than usual. I read five or six books on church and politics. I listened to a couple sermon series. And Tim Keller said something really interesting. And what Tim Keller said was, um, uh, politics, uh, your faith influencing your politics means in some way you're always going to stick out from your tribe. And if you are, look at your tribe, whatever tribe it is, and you look down the list of stuff and you line up with it 100%, you're probably not really letting your faith influence your whole life. And he goes, this really happened if, as you look at um, the early church and you look at the politics of the very earliest church. And there's a guy named Rodney Stark who wrote a book, a whole book about this. He was a historian and a sociologist. And he said that there were a couple of things that really set the church apart in the Roman world. Now, as I say these things, try to decide if the early church was conservative or liberal in our system, okay? So the first thing that Rodney Stark says is that they were radically pro-life. And so this worked out in a few different ways. The first way is, um, they did have sort of really brutal, you can read about it, I don't recommend it, but brutal different forms of abortion in the first century in the Roman world. And the church was very against this. Like, I'll give you a couple quotes here. Um, in the Didache, which is like one of the earliest Christian writings after the New Testament, it says, you shall not murder a child by abortion or kill them when they're unborn. Tertullian, who was a church father, said, in our case, uh, a murder being once and for all forbidden, we may not destroy even the fetus in the womb. 
And we can talk about like how that all, the biblical case for being pro-life later on. But um, the early church was very pro-life in that sense, but they were also very pro-life in a second sense, in that um, infanticide was super common in the Roman world. And it was especially common when you had a girl. They would just kill tons of girl babies because they didn't want them. They, were, they didn't contribute enough to the family. And so there's even a letter that it's like so hard to read. There's a soldier. He's a Roman soldier. He's in Egypt. And he's writing his wife, who's back in Rome. Or I don't remember where she is. And he writes her, and paraphrasing, he goes, I'm so glad um, that you're pregnant and the, you know, it's all going well. I guess he had gotten a letter from her or something. He goes, when you have the baby... If it's a boy, name it, whatever. And if it's a girl, leave it outside of town. Just like, so very matter of fact. And so what the early church did was they took the, the, the gospel and they said, people are made in the image of God. Girls, boys, slaves, free, Greek, barbarian, all of us, right? We're, we're made in the image of God. And so what the churches did, I've talked about this before, but they would grab lanterns at night and they would go up and down uh, the, the, the streets outside the city, and they would listen for crying babies. And then they would take them, and they would adopt these babies. And this is where a lot of the foundation for Christians adopting kids and uh, starting orphanages in the 17 and 1800s when nobody was taking care of these orphans, this is where a lot of it started, was with these early church. And one of the ways the early church grew was because all of a sudden, all the women in the empire had been raised by Christians. Not all of them, but a big chunk of them, right? And, where, and then moms influenced their kids, and then those women had kids, you know. All right, so that was the first thing. The second thing that Rodney Stark talks about is that the, the early church had radical views as opposed to the Roman views on sexuality. And so in the Roman world, this is how it worked. You had a wife, and she was for making babies, and probably you would try to use her for status and social stuff, right? But you were not friends with your wife, and your sexual pleasure and all that was supposed to be found elsewhere. And in the Roman world, that was... Men, boys, slaves, prostitutes, concubines, girlfriends, whatever, like all, all over. And they were okay with that. You would go to temples, shrines, and, you know, and that's how the Roman world worked. And Christianity, Paul comes along, and he says about sexuality, men and women are equal. You're submitting to one another. You're supposed to love each other. You're not supposed to deprive each other sexually, which was a radical idea in the Roman world, that a wife had as much right to her husband as the husband had to the wife. That was crazy uh, in the Roman world. And that really set them apart because what would happen is a bunch of guys would get together and they would say, hey, we're going to the temple for, you know, the temple prostitutes. And the Christian guys would have to go, no, I love my wife. And the Roman guy would go, yeah, I love my wife too. She had tons of kids. And the guy, Christian guy would have to say, no, 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 I actually love my wife. You know, and it really set them apart. It made them have to uh, really stick out. Now, the third thing that Rodney Stark, the third and final thing he says really set them apart was an insane radical care for the poor and the vulnerable and for the alien and for the outsider. And so like when we open up the book of Acts, and we're going to read Acts later on this year probably, start it anyway, read, some, read it in pieces, um, they're selling houses to take care of the poorest people in their community. Um, there's a guy named Julian the Apostate. He was an um, emperor, a Roman emperor, and he was writing, there's a famous letter where he's writing uh, the head of his religion. And he, he's telling the guy, hey, what's the deal, man? Uh, these Christians, not only do they take care of their own poor people, they're taking care of our poor people. Basically paraphrasing, he's like, what do you do all day? 
you know, how, this is how these guys, the, the gospel is spreading because, you know, this, this religion is spreading because of how radical these guys take care of the poor and vulnerable. And Stark has a whole part in his book where he talks about how Christians uh, would take care of the sick even though they knew it would probably kill them. And so there would be a plague in a city and every rich person would leave the city and everybody who could afford to would leave the city. And then everybody in the city would start getting sick and dying. And all of a sudden, bands of Christians would descend on these cities and they would take care of people uh, and they would help them. And then these people would die and then the Christians would die and everybody would know the only folks who took care of these dudes were a bunch of believers, were a bunch of followers of Jesus. Now, hey guys, come on in and sit down. Um, and so here's the, so you take those three things. And this is what Rodney Stark says. I need you to see this. Um, as you take those three things and you try to pin down these early Christians, would you say if you brought them into our world now that they were conservative or liberal? And he, what Rodney Stark says is you couldn't pin them down. What's the saying? It's like nailing jello to a wall. You wouldn't be able to do it. And as a follower of Jesus, you should kind of expect the same thing in your life and politics is that you should not look like the world around you. And what that means is, and we'll talk about this at the end too, the U.S. political system is not the center of your life. What happens in Washington, what happens in Sacramento, what happens downtown, or not downtown, down on Van Ness there at the city hall, uh, is not the center of your life. It's not where your hope lies. The kingdom of God is where your hope lies. The question, though, is how do we... How do we navigate faith and politics, these two things? Today we're going to read about two political leaders in Ezekiel. The first is the king of Tyre, uh, the city we talked about last week where God said, I'm going to destroy the city. The second is the pharaoh of Egypt. And here's what I want to do. The text is going to tell us this. I'm going to give you the answer up front. The text is going to say God really cares how political leaders especially use their power and influence. And when political leaders use their power and influence to hurt the vulnerable, and to tear people down and for personal gain, God says, I'm not playing around. I don't like this at all. And with these two specifically, he says, I'm going to destroy you guys. And so what we're going to do today in our walk through the book of Ezekiel, we're going to spend less time in the, the text of Ezekiel. We're going to kind of read it and fly through as fast as I can to get to talking about uh, what the text means. We're going to go pretty quick through what the text actually says. But as we read about these two leaders, I want you to just see that, that that's the main point here. God really cares that these two guys were abusing their power. Cool? All right, so let's read. Uh, let's see, follow along. We're going to read. Oh, the other thing is the outline here real quick. Normally, we just go through books of the Bible. Here, though, we're stopping. We're reading 28, and then we're jumping and reading 32 because these two chapters are linked. And then next week, we're going to read 29, 30, and 31, which is the oracle against Egypt. Um, all right, so here we go. The oracle against the king of Tyre, Ezekiel. Uh, let's see, what are we in? 28. The word of the Lord came to me and say to the ruler of Tyre. So this guy was named Ithabal II. Anybody's looking for babies' names? Uh, That's a great bit. No. Uh, This is what the Lord God says. Your heart is proud, and you have said, I am a god. I sit in the seat of gods in the heart of the sea. Yet you are a man and not a god, though you have regarded your heart as that of a god. So this king, he's proud. And he does what a lot of kings in the ancient world did. They started telling everybody, I'm not just a king, I'm a god. I'm not just some guy, I'm divine. 
And when somebody says, I'm divine and you should pay your taxes, it has a lot more force than, hey, I was duly elected and you should pay your taxes. You know, they would use this to build their power and status. And what the actual God, the creator of the universe, says through his prophet here is, you say I'm, I'm a god. You, I, ru I rule the seas, because remember Tyre was like an island nation and a seafaring people. And he says, uh, no, you're not. God says, I'm God. You know, it's like when um, the video <laughs> where the guy uh, pulls over an undercover cop in his car, and the cop pulls over, and the guy walks up to the window. Have you guys seen this video? And he goes, can I see your license and registration, sir? And the cop goes, what department are you with? And the guy wasn't a cop. He was just some pretender who goes around pretending to be a cop and pulling people over. And the cop's like, um, I know cops, and I know you're not a cop, man. <laughs> anyway, the guy did time for impersonating a police officer, right? This is God. This guy's, I'm a God. And the real God goes, well, actually, <laughs> you're not. You're just some guy, and I made you. Verse 3, yet... Uh, yes, you are wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. This is sarcasm. He thought he was wise. He thought he was brilliant. So God goes, yeah, you're wiser than Daniel, who was known to be wise, which just goes to show that sarcasm is the most godly form of humor. It's all over the Bible. All right, keep going. Verse 4, but your wisdom and your understanding, by your wisdom and understanding, you have acquired wealth for yourself. You've acquired gold and silver for your treasuries. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth, but your heart has become proud because of your wealth. Daniel used his wisdom in the book of Daniel to serve the Lord. This king, though, the king of Tyre, he's used his wisdom and his power and everything for what? Personal gain. Wealth for yourself. Right? How is it that, I mean, talk, just think about our politics. I, I'm thinking of a few people that I won't say names so I don't get sued. But how is it that some councilman who's been a city councilman since the 70s owns a mansion in San Francisco on a $70,000 a year salary? or whatever, I don't know what they make, 150, let's say, you know, I don't know, right? It's they're using wealth. God does not like that. You, what are you supposed to do with this power and wealth as, as a political leader and as somebody with influence? You're supposed to use it to take care of the vulnerable, take care of the people who can't take care of themselves. Verse six, so this is what the Lord God says, right? Remember this, the because therefore thing, right? Um, in this section, God always says to these nations and these people, because you did this, therefore, this is what I'm going to do. Because you were wicked, I'm going to judge you. And this, we're in the middle of this big session about judgment. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. Because you regard your heart as that of a God, I'm about to bring strangers against you, ruthless men from the nations. They will draw their swords against your magnificent wisdom and pierce your splendor. They will bring you down to the pit, and you will die a violent death in the heart of the sea. Will you, say, will you still say, I am a God in the presence of those who slay you? Yet you will be only a man and not a god. In the hands of those who kill you, you will die the death of the uncircumcised at the hands of strangers, for I have spoken. This is the declaration of the Lord. Gods are divine. Gods don't die. But because you, king of Tyre, are just some guy who happens to be a ruler, who's used, you've used your power to puff up your pride, to take care of yourself, to build your own wealth, God says, I'm going to judge you for that. And when the judgment comes and the army is there, and you're crying and screaming for your mom, is anybody going to look at you and think, yeah, that guy was a god? Right? When the army breaks through your wall, and then he says, when you're taken to the afterlife, how proud are you going to be then? How proud of yourself? And so, because the judgment is death, the next part we're going to read is what, what the Bible calls a lament, which is, we've read a few of these. Uh, we don't have laments in our culture, but it was a song you would write for somebody's funeral. 
And it was super rude to write a funeral song for somebody who was still alive. <laughs> but that's what he does. As a judgment, I'm going to write a funeral song for you. Now, we have to take a quick sidebar here real quick and talk about biblical interpretation. Now, um, this could be a whole sermon, but I didn't want to get too caught up because it's not really what we're talking about today. But there are some people in the early church who take this funeral lament that we're about to read, and they read it as if it has nothing to do with the king of Tyre. And what they say is this is about Satan. This is the story of Satan. Um, there's one commentator, he wrote this. He said, for many years, I saw this chapter and the chapter in Isaiah 14 as referring to Satan. But in its context, now I see that it cannot be. Basically, it's, bad inter- it's really a fanciful interpretation to read this and go, this is describing the devil. Um, John Calvin, who was a commentator and pastor guy, he like openly mocked that interpretation. He wrote a bunch of jokes about it and stuff. Basically, what's going on here is the king of Tyre is going to be described using language that's very uh, big and flowery. And they use language from the Garden of Eden. And so some theologians went, well, the king of Tyre was never in the Garden of Eden. And so this must be about Satan. But I think what's going on here is it just bugs people how little the Bible tells us about the enemy. Right? He, we don't get a lot of the details, and so we're grasping for stuff. Well, he was a fallen angel, and he did this, and he was all this, and you know, some of that we know, but some of it we don't know, and some of it was picked up from this chapter that actually has nothing to do with the enemy. Right? This chapter is specifically about the political leader and how he was abusing his power. And so this song is about the king of Tyre using this fancy Edenic language to say, just like I gave Adam everything and he squandered it, God says, you're like a new Adam king of Tyre. I gave you everything and you squandered it. So let's look at what it says. Verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, lament for the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the Lord God says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every kind of precious stone covered you, carnelian, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise, and emeralds. Your mounting and setting were crafted in gold. Uh, They were prepared on the day you were created. You were an anointed guardian cherub, for I had appointed you. You were the holy mountain of God. You walked among fiery stones. From the day you were created, you were blameless in your ways until wickedness was found in you. So again, I gave you everything. And then verse 16. Though the abundance of, through the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I expelled you in disgrace from the mountain of God, banished you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud because of your beauty. For the sake of your splendor, you corrupted your wisdom. So I threw you down to the ground. I made you a spectacle before kings. You profaned your sanctuaries by the magnitude of your iniquities in your dishonest trade. So I made fire come from within you and it consumed you. I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of everyone watching you. All those who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You've become an object of horror and will never exist again. So the charge is you had all this power and you used it for violence and personal gain. Imagine how corrupt the human heart has to be to say, I have a political position of power. What am I going to do with this? I am literally going to send soldiers and you know, whoever, you know, the goon squad, to go out there and commit violence against people. I'm talking cracking skulls, breaking arms, whatever it was, drawing blood, all for the purpose of, I can have a little bit more stuff. And God says, that's not the way the world is supposed to work, and that's not the way you're supposed to use this power. And because of that now, he uses all this army language again. I'm going to send armies against you. 
Um, and the next section, what we're going to see, these next couple verses, is how the king's actions, they have an effect on the people around you. So when you're a political leader, and like when we make decisions in San Francisco, right, our politicians here, those decisions affect the whole Bay Area. When we make decisions as a country, those decisions affect all of North America because we're kind of a superpower, the whole world, right? And so that's what happens here. There's this weird little section about the city of Sidon. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, face Sidon and prophesy against it. You are to say, this is what the Lord God says. Look, I am against you, Sidon, and I will display my glory within you. They will know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments against her and demonstrate my holiness through her. I will send a plague against her and bloodshed in her streets. The slain will fall within her while the sword is against her on every side. Then they will know that I am the Lord. The house of Israel will no longer be hurt by her prickly briars or painful thorns from all their neighbors who treat them with contempt. And then they will know that I am the Lord God. So again, the context here is weird. He's talking about the king of Tyre, and then all of a sudden he has this little section about the city next door. And I think the reason is because of that. The, the king had influence over these people, and his horrible leadership had corrupted these people. And uh, the, 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 um, the evil within his heart had spread to this city as well. All right, let's keep going. We've got some more verses here. I'm going to try to get through all this. We'll see how far we get. Uh, this is what the Lord God says. When I gather the house of Israel from the peoples where they're scattered, I will demonstrate my holiness through them in the sight of the nations. Then they will live in their own land, which I gave my servant Jacob. They will live there securely, build houses, plant vineyards. They will live there securely when I execute my judgments against the neighbors who treat them with contempt. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. So the purpose of this judgment is to protect his own people. Tyre and Sidon, Egypt, they were all neighbors of the people of God. And their terrible politics were affecting the people of God. And so God says, look, I'm going to judge you guys. And in that, I'm going to bring my people back to me. Okay, so now we're going to jump forward to, to chapter 32. And what we're going to read is almost the same thing that we just read about the king of Tyre, but now it happens with the Pharaoh. So um, chapter 32, 1, in the 12th year, in the 12th month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. So this um, oracle is, the book of Ezekiel is kind of all out of chronological order. He organizes things by topic, you know, and I'll show you later. In a couple weeks, I'm going to show you a um, uh, slide that kind of shows you how he organizes things by topic. Um, but this is one of the last things Ezekiel ever wrote. Uh, anyway, so he says, son of man, lament for Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So this is a Pharaoh named Hophra. Anybody looking for baby names? Hophra, Pharaoh. It's a good one. He ruled for about 20 years in 589. I wrote it down here. 589 to 570. So say to this king, you know the pharaohs? You ever seen pictures of these guys? They're pretty impressive dudes, right? They had, all, they had everything around them. He says, say to Pharaoh, you compare yourself to a lion of the nations. So that's a way to say you're very proud. You think a lot of yourself. But you're like a monster in the seas. You thrash about in the rivers. You churn up the waters with your feet, and you muddy the rivers. So God uses this very common language of like a sea monster. And the ocean was like the pinnacle of fear in the ancient world. Everybody was afraid of the ocean. And so if there was a monster in the ocean, that's even more scary than the ocean. And God says, you're like a sea monster. You tell it, you scare everybody and you think you're uh, super important. The good news is, though, God says, I'm the crocodile hunter. You guys remember that guy? Um, <laughs> I love that Norm joke, by the way, about not being shocked when the crocodile hunter died. 
He's like, well, he was the crocodile hunter. He lived pretty long considering his job. Anyway, uh, verse 3. So God says, I'm the hunter, the crocodile hunter. This is what the Lord God says. I will spread my net over you with an assembly of many peoples, and they will haul you up in my net. So I'll capture you with a net. And then verse 4. I will abandon you on the land, and I'll throw you in the open field. I will cause all the birds of the sky to settle on you and let wild creatures of the entire earth eat their fill of you. So I'm going to take you, sea monster, I'm going to grab you with a net, and then I'm going to pull you up onto the shore. This is the judgment. I'm just going to leave you there, and you're going to die because now you're not in the ocean, and then all the birds are going to eat your body. This is pretty brutal language to say. Could you imagine if somebody said this to, like, Joe Biden? Like, the gall it would take to, like, get to, you know, you work for some nonprofit or something, you get invited to the White House, and you get to sit in the Oval Office with Joe Biden... And you go, God's going <laughs> to scoop you up, and he's going to let the birds eat your face. They'd be like, all right, thanks for coming in. You know, <laughs> secret service. Like, it's a pretty bold thing to say to a very powerful person, right? I think the difference here is this guy totally deserved it. <laughs> Verse 5, I will put on your flesh. He keeps going. I'll put um, your flesh on the mountains and fill the valley with your carcass. I will drench the land with the flow of, uh, with the flow of your blood, even to the mountains, and the ravines will be filled with your gore. Now, there's a verse nobody has tattooed on their arm. This is brutal imagery. And he says, because of how you have been brutal with people, though, and you've used violence to oppress people, I'm going to use violence to oppress you. God says, I'm going to let you drink from the cup that you gave everybody else, give you a taste of your own medicine. Verse 7, when I snuff you out, I will cover the heavens and darken the stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. I will darken all the shining lights in the heavens over you, and I will bring darkness on your land. This is the declaration of the Lord God. So the idea of darkness is I'm going to take you then to the afterlife. And remember the idea of heaven and hell wasn't quite as um, uh, thought through, not thought through, wasn't quite as revealed fully in the Old Testament. Some of the stuff we learned in the New Testament sheds light on this. Here he just means I'm going to take you into the darkness and judgment is coming. I will trouble you, verse 9, uh, with the heart of many peoples when I bring about your destruction among the nations in the countries you have not known. Um, so I will be so brutal with this, God says, that people are going to look at you and go, oof. Have you ever seen somebody, like just yesterday, I was watching a video last night in the middle of the night, so I guess technically this morning, of a guy who tried to run a motorcycle through a loop, you know, like a, a ramp that was a loop, and he goes, and he goes, and he gets upside down, and he almost makes it, and then he doesn't, and he falls face first into the like other part of the ramp and I swiped away as fast I didn't I knew what was coming and I didn't actually have to watch the guy break his whole face off because I couldn't Ooh. <laughs> right I gotta stop clicking on things on the internet by the way this is getting to me but that's kind of what he says here is that people are gonna look at you like John watch that guy and you're gonna go Ooh, that's not great what happened but how is this practically gonna play out um, okay, so uh, verse 11, I'm going to skip some stuff here, okay? I'm going to skip some of the reading. I want you guys to go back and read these couple of verses that I'm skipping. Um, we're also going to do this in the end of Ezekiel. There's some parts we're not going to read the whole part. But I'm going to give you the outline. Um, in 11 through 16, this is what God says. Um, I'm specifically not just, I'm not uh, judging you uh, maybe someday. He says, I'm going to get specific. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to send the king of Babylon, and he, he's going to come get you. And Nebuchadnezzar and Egypt were arch enemies. And what ended up happening is exactly what God said, um, is that 
uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he destroyed the city of Tyre. Then he went south and he destroyed the city of, um, or not city, he destroyed the nation of Egypt. He destroyed a ton of different cities. So I want to skip down real quick. We're going to skip those verses. And we're going to go to verse 17, where it says, um, in the twelfth year, on the fifteenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, wail over the hordes of Egypt and bring the daughters of mighty nations down to the underworld. Be with those who descend in the pit. Who do you surpass in loveliness? Go down and lay to be rest with the uncircumcised. They will fall among the slain with the sword. A sword is appointed. Um, anyway, I'm not going to read this whole thing. This goes all the way to the end of the chapter, right? Verse 32, is that right? Um, I'm not going to read this whole thing. But it goes to the end of the chapter, and basically God just says, look, I'm going to drag you down into the pit, and you're going to be judged. And what's going to happen is Babylon's going to come, and they're going to destroy you. And it happened just like he said. Um, again, we don't have time. We're skipping some of this. We don't have time for all this today. But um, Pharaoh will be taken to the place of judgment. And there's this interesting part we didn't quite read. But when he gets there, Pharaoh is a little bit comforted because he'll see all of his other friends there. And he goes, well, at least I took them with me, right? That's how, the arrogant, that's how arrogant and self-centered he is, not thinking about others. And instead of using his political power for the good of his people, for the good of his vassal nations and everything, he used it to bring them to hell with him. And then he gets to hell and he goes, well, at least they're here too. I'm glad I'm not by myself. That is wicked and evil. And that's the kind of leader he was, arrogant, proud, violent, unwise, cruel, and so what we have here is these two long chapters on God judging political leaders for the way that they exercise their power. And there's parts of like um, Amos and Micah where God says this to his own people as well. And he gets really mad at some of these kings for the way that they're not just. Now, at the beginning we said today's sermon was going to be about faith and politics. And in most sermons and books about faith and politics, like in most sermons, let's say the pastor gets up. And the close is this. He reads that section from, oh, I should have wrote this down. Now I'm blanking. I think it's the book of Peter, one of the Peters, where he says, um, pray. Do you know off the top of your head? Pray for your leaders. Is it Peter? Anybody? Well, I'll just pretend it's Peter. Okay. Uh, where he goes, look, this is what you guys need to do. You need to pray for and support our leaders. I know he says it in Romans too, because your, your government is an institution that God set up for your benefit. And your government is there to do justice and enforce law and uh, provide for people and whatever, right? And so the, your government is an institution under the authority of God, and you need to pray for your leaders. And that's how most sermons end, right? So because we're followers of Jesus, we pray for our leaders, and we get up and we do a prayer for Joe Biden and the whole thing. But today what I want to do is I want to come at this from a little bit of a different angle. And um, I read a book where the guy kind of said this, and it made a light bulb go off in my head. And what he said was, in the United States our government was a, is a representative one. And so what that means is you go to the ballot box, you vote for people. Though the winner of an election goes and makes decisions for all of us. And what that means is, for most of human history, government worked like this. The gods have made me the king. I have ultimate authority. You may not question it, and you must give me your full allegiance or I'm gonna take your head. That's how most governments have worked for most of history. And so when Peter, and Paul and these guys were telling their follower, you know, telling these Christians, you need to pray for your leaders. That's the kind of government that those guys were sitting underneath. There was not a representative government. They had no power in their system. Um, they had an emperor with absolute authority. Our system is different. Citizens in our system don't look at a government with absolute authority. We look at a system where we participate 
in that system. And so what I want to take this sermon and talk about politics uh, from a little bit of a different angle. Because in our text, what did we see? That God cares very much how humans, uh, authorities, how human authorities exercise the power that they have. The creator of the universe cares how we use the power that we have. And by being a person in the U.S. who can vote and make decisions, right, or you know, um, you're part, you aren't the people under the king. In a certain way, you are the king of Tyre, in a very small way. You are the pharaoh of Egypt. And so I don't want this sermon to be, the sermon isn't just how to be a leader if you're somebody who happens to actually be a leader and hold office. This sermon is about how to use whatever power it is that you have in our system. And you have power if, you know, some of you are not citizens, you can't vote, but you can protest, you can do other things, right? And, you know, some of you are on the path to citizenship and whatever. So I understand that. But let's just say we all have different levels of power in our system. And you, the responsibility goes up with how much authority you have. The president has way more responsibility in this area than I do. I don't have a lot of responsibility in this area, but I'm a voting citizen, and so I do have some responsibility. I can protest. You know, I can go down and picket something. I can sign petitions. I can vote. I can get involved in campaigns. All of this stuff is ways that I exercise authority. So what I want to do is give you closing with, I mean, <clears throat> don't get too excited, closing with three points. I want to give you three ideas what the Bible says, and again, at some point, we're going to do a whole sermon series on this. This is just the appetizer, okay? But here we go. The first thing is you have to remember that your citizenship is in heaven. Since the time of the Enlightenment, this idea has popped up that's never really showed up anywhere in human history, and it goes like this. Your religious views are private and individual, and you need to keep your religious views to yourself. It's fine that you're a religious person, but that's your business, and don't bring that into politics at all. Followers of Jesus in our day and age, a lot of them, have fallen into the outworkings of that idea. And what we've done is we've compartmentalized ourselves. My politics is over here and my faith is over here. We aren't whole integrated beings, right? We're, we're not um, fried rice. We're, um, we're uh, TV dinners. You know what I mean? Like the, where you get the little compartment for each part. Fried rice is the whole meal and it's all in one thing. And that's the kind of people Christians are supposed to be. Not compartmentalized. We have family, politics, church, work, whatever, you know. If you remember from our reading the book of Luke, this is not the kind of life Jesus calls us to. When Jesus calls you to, he brings you into his kingdom, and he takes all of you, not just part of you. He gets your whole life, not just Sunday. He gets your, what is it, first Tuesdays in November, as well as your Sunday. Isn't that when we vote? Is it first Tuesdays or second? First Tuesdays? We're supposed to be people who are formed by scripture. One of the reasons we do the receive, reject, redeem thing when we watch movies and stuff, um, that exercise is because we want to realize that everything around us is trying to form us. And we want to stop when we watch a movie, read a book, and ask, what is, what is this trying to turn me into? How is this thing trying to form me? And as a follower of Jesus, we don't want to be formed by Babylon and the kingdom out there. We want to be formed by the kingdom of God that happens with his people. Second Timothy says this, right? All scripture is, uh, sorry, this is a different version. That I, this is a verse I've memorized and I have to read a different version. All right, here, let's try it. All scripture is inspired by God, or not breathed by God, anyway, and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's a quick way to say that the foundation of your life should be the words of God found in his scripture. This is what we build our foundation on. Jesus talked about this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, 
when he says, you know, the guy that listens to me is like the dude who builds his house on rock, not on sand. So that when the storms come, you have an actual foundation. It's not going to wipe your house into the sea. Now, here's the thing, though. The Bible is not exhaustive. It doesn't tell us how cells work or which cell phone plan to choose or if we should spend the extra $1.50 and get the guacamole. You know, like there's a lot of things that aren't in the scriptures. But all of those parts of our lives are supposed to be built on a scriptural foundation. When you dig to the bottom of the question of what cell phone plan should I get, should be you dig all the way down, what you get to is a bedrock of scripture that's formed your worldview. And so the first thing is to remember that as we build this worldview, what pops out of that is heavenly citizenship, not earthly citizenship, right? We are citizens of earth, but not primarily. If the Bible forms who we are and how we see the world, we have our primary citizenship is with another nation. It's somewhere else. And um, like I said, uh, I'm skipping some of this because I, I don't want to go till tomorrow. Um, with the idea with heavenly citizenship is this. Um, my primary allegiance is not to what's going on right in front of me. And what that means is every election, this is the biggest election that's ever happened. Even if that is true, even if you were voting in 1860 for Abraham Lincoln or that other dude, right, in the biggest election in American history, it's not the most important thing to you. It's huge. But my ultimate allegiance is somewhere else. And if whatever candidate you think should win the next whatever comes up, and you put all of your hopes and dreams into some candidate, you're going to be crushed. Only when you realize that your heavenly citizenship is more important are you going to be able to engage in political discussion, engage in the political world without putting your entire identity and being into it. And so sometimes your guy is going to lose. And you know what? That's OK. Because the guy that you really voted for is still sitting on the throne. I guess you didn't vote for him. He voted for you. But anyway, <laughs> don't read too much into that, right? But the king is still on the throne. By the way, speaking of democracy and everything, how everybody loves, you know, I mean, it's great. I love living in this country. But at the same time, the one time God had a chance to create his own nation, what kind of nation did he put in place? Anybody know? A theocracy, <laughs> right? Okay, so democracy is great, but let's not pretend like it's God-ordained, you know, like our system of government is the greatest thing that's ever happened, right? So anyway, because our king still sits on the throne. So that's the first thing. Here's the second idea. Kingdom people use what power and influence they possess to serve and love society. This is so important. Remember the upside-down kingdom from Luke. Basically, it goes like this. Uh, the world works, power in the world works like this. It's a pyramid. And you move up the pyramid, and the higher you get up the pyramid, the more people underneath you are lifting you up and supporting you. The kingdom of God is you take that pyramid and you flip it upside down. And instead of working our way to the top so that we can have as many people serving us and we can have as much stuff and as much crap in our lives as we can muster, we go the other way. We try to see how many people can we lift up. We work our way to the bottom because that's what Jesus ultimately did. The American political system is riddled with the attributes of what the Bible calls Babylon. Right? The Babylon is just the system that keeps popping up. It happened with Babylon. Next week, we'll talk about how Egypt was also kind of like Babylon. And then Alexander the Great and the Romans and the medieval church, like this system. And in a lot of ways, the American system is riddled with these attributes of Babylon. And I think it's, again, I think it's a pretty great country compared to what's happened in a lot of world history. 
Um, but at the same time, I think we can say that a lot of that cycle shows up in American politics. Babylon always seeks its own good over the good of others. The kingdom of God seeks the good of others over my own good. Babylon steamrolls the weak and the vulnerable. The kingdom of God serves those who need it most. Babylon sees the world through secular or pagan lenses. The kingdom of God sees the world through Jesus' eyes. Babylon is very much about teams. Like, are you on my team or not? It's about segregating people and sectioning them off. It's about uh, injustice. The kingdom of God is about bringing people together. The kingdom of God is about justice. And so as a follower of Jesus, your duty is to let the Bible inform you and uh, the spirit of God to transform you into an upside-down kingdom of God person. And then you take, remember, I'm not telling you how to vote. What we're doing today is I'm trying to tell you how to think before you vote and how to build a system. So what I need, what, what you should do is take that upside-down kingdom value that I don't always have to vote for the thing that's best for me. I need to vote for the thing that's best for the weak and the vulnerable and the people that can't take care of themselves. And that's not something we see a lot in politics. How many times have you heard a politician get up and say, you know what, I'm going to vote for something that my whole team hates because I genuinely think it would help this marginalized group of people. I'm going to let my team lose this one to help somebody. I can't think of hearing something like that a single time in American politics. But that's the kind of voting we bring into kingdom, into, into our political world. Okay, but here's the thing. How? This is a complicated question that requires more than a black and white uh, worldview. Right? There are, this is where things get fuzzy. Okay, there are some biblical ethics books that you can read, like Christian ethics. And what those books are, the way it works out is this. Here's a list of things that you have to believe to be a Christian. And a lot of it is like, these are the gray area things. And some guy has his own system, and he says, if you don't believe this, you're not a real believer. You don't have real faith. Right? That's not what I want to do here. I don't want to give you a list of things, but rather what I want to do is give you sort of a, like I said, we call this wisdom. It's navigating the areas of life where, there's no, where moral rules don't apply. That's wisdom. And that's what we're doing here. And I want, I want you to think about this. So here's the third thing. While the Bible shapes our worldview, we're still required to make wise decisions. We need to use our scriptural foundation. We need to use the upside-down kingdom, and we need to look at the issues in front of us and try to decide, how am I going to vote on this? How, am I, is this something I should be protesting? Is this something I should be really involved in? Um, like I said, you've probably heard this before. Don't bring your religion into politics. Anybody, has anybody not heard that ever? Yeah, that's what I thought. This is what people say. Don't bring your religion into politics. Politics, though, at its core is passing laws built on morality statements, morality judgments. Everything that we've done is a morality judgment. So the question is not don't bring your morality here, it's whose morality do we bring? How does that work? And it gets pretty complicated, right? So it's terrible logic to tell somebody, you don't get to bring your morals into this conversation, but I get to bring mine. That's bad logic. So let me give you some examples. For instance, don't murder. That's a morality statement. Murder is morally wrong and it hurts people. So as a society, we have a law, don't murder. If you murder, you go to jail or whatever, however that works, you know. But what about in areas of morality as believers? We have areas of morality that because we're shaped by scripture, but we don't enforce laws on them. How does that work? Right, let's take a Christian moral issue that's very important in church life, gossip. 
Don't gossip. Don't talk crap about each other. Don't tear each other down to make yourself feel a little bit better. That is a very Christian idea in the upside-down kingdom. We hate gossip. Problem is, we don't. We love it. But <laughs> we're supposed to hate gossip. So the Bible is clear about gossip. It's wrong. But in your gut, you know if I was to try to pass a law to jail people who gossip, how many of you would vote for that law? No. So here's the question, though. Why? <laughs> why, would, why should we not... Why should we enforce part of our morality as believers Why and not others? Why outlaw murder and not gossip? And what we need to do is we need to then think of in terms of not just the clarity of something biblically, but the, the effectiveness of enforcing human rights and justice. Right? So um, in our system, right, the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So in our system, we think, is this thing biblically clear when we're voting and thinking about this stuff? But also, am I protecting human rights? Is this an effective law? Right? Is this actually going to work? And so murder, yeah, people have a right to live. We would say our morality, the Bible is clear that, yes, people have a right to live. And also at the same time, um, in voting for a law against murder, you would be protecting human life. You would be protecting human rights. Gossip, there's not really a human right to not have your feelings hurt. And so it's because it's a less serious thing, we wouldn't vote for that. Now, um, another thing that's important to remember is while we're voting for this stuff and thinking about this stuff, we can't expect a law passed by a secular nation to do to a heart what God says only he can do. And this is a huge problem in American politics is we've tried to enforce morality stuff in a way that we expect people's hearts to change because of it. And um, so again, this is where human rights and all that stuff comes into, um, into play. We vote for things for human rights, not trying to enforce our system of sexual morality or enforce whatever on the world around us. Now, um, here's what I wanna do real quick. This is how we're gonna end. I wanna give you, I want you to look at this graph. Did that show up on the chart? Okay, there you go. This is the faith and politics graph. Did you put this in the thing? I didn't scroll through the thing. Okay, so this is in the thing. If you want a big version of this, I can email you a big version, but you can also just draw this yourself, uh, even if you can't draw. Okay, so on this, going this way, wait, that's the y-axis. It's been a while. Y goes up and down, and X goes this way. All right, I thought so. I just You guys all majored in math, and I'm stupid. So, Okay, thanks, man. So this one here, circle biblical clarity. So when you think of an issue, you're going to plot it in three, two places here. First, biblical clarity going up. So the clearer something is, the higher you put it on this chart. And then the second thing over here is practicality. Is this law practical? Is it going to do what you need it to do? And the third thing is, is this law, or not just a law, but it's the person I'm protecting human rights, executing justice. Right Now, what you want, thinking about this graph, let's see if you, do you get the graph? You understand it? Watch, put your little thing. Where is a, a good law that you would vote for all the time on the chart? Yep, clear in biblical terms. And so you're gonna plot one blue and one yellow on this chart. And ideally what you want is both of those plot points to be all the way up there, okay? So I'm gonna give you some examples and I'm gonna make everybody mad. Okay, ready? Here's the first example. Okay, this is the easy one. This is murder. Uh, okay, so it, biblically clear, should we murder? No, 
Okay, this is important enough that it's in the Ten Commandments, right? This is a pretty good one. Okay, now, in murdering, we are, in passing a law that punishes murderers, do you think sometimes that stops murder? I think it does. <laughs> um, so practicality, yeah, the law works. It's not 100%, right? People still get murdered. The second thing is, in passing a law that says don't murder people, are we protecting human rights and are we executing justice? And I would say, yeah. Okay, this is just a very simple, we're not getting into sentencing guidelines and all that stuff. Some of these plot points would move as you start talking more serious about some of that stuff. But you get the idea. Okay, let's keep on. Uh, oh, wait. Oh, nerds. Oh, I did put it in here. Okay, murder. Let's, they're out of order in my thing. The second issue is passing harsh laws on shoplifting. Now, here's where I'm going to make everybody mad, okay? I'm going to try to be fair and not tell you how to vote, but I'm just saying different believers are going to come at this from different spots. Now, the L's for liberals, the C's for conservatives, okay? So the Bible is pretty clear, don't steal stuff. So the, the plot point goes all the way to the top. It's one of the Ten Commandments, pretty good, right? Now, practicality of shoplifting laws. Liberal folks would say these laws don't really work, um, and they actually do the opposite, right? They purposely go after certain types of people and different stuff. Um, protecting human rights. So both of those plot points for a liberal person is more to the left. A conservative person would say, no, these laws do work, and we need to not just protect the life of the person uh, who is doing the shoplifting, but the people they're shoplifting from. And so a conservative and a liberal Christian are going to come at this, and here's the thing that really we need to learn how to do well is you need to be able to talk about the x-axis in a gracious way without, con without saying it's because you don't understand the Bible, right? And this is what we do. We turn that x-axis into the y-axis when we fight over politics and we become very mean to each other. and We become very ungracious. And I would like for churches to be able to sit down and two people in church talk about an issue and understand Okay, we're talking x-axis kind of a thing here. We all agree shoplifting is bad, but what should our society do about it to be just and to take care of the people at the bottom? Maybe we shouldn't be worrying about shoplifting laws, a liberal person would say. We should be worrying about why do people get forced, not forced into, but why do people get put in situations where they're shoplifting? How does that work? We need to address bigger societal issues, right? And so they'll put it here, but then a conservative will say, okay, yeah, that's true. We can address those issues somewhere else, but with a shoplifting law, that person still just stole something. And we need to be able to have those conversations. I'm not telling you which way to vote. Okay, here's another one. Um, a pro-life candidate. So I want you to do an imaginary. This one's more imaginary. Let's pretend this is before Roe v. Wade got overturned. This was an issue that happened my whole life, was liberals and conservatives. Now, some of you might argue with me the biblical clarity part of a pro-life position. I can argue with that with you on that later. I think the Bible is like pretty clear. I've read a handful, a lot of stuff on this. Um, protecting human life, even unborn life, is like pretty important. It's why almost all churches agree on this issue. But before Roe v. Wade, liberal people uh, would say um, the practicality, oh wait, I think I flipped those. Oh yeah, I flipped the green and blue for the liberals. So let's pretend those are flipped. Liberal, if you had a pro-life candidate, liberal people would have said, liberal pro-life people in the 90s or whatever, 2000s, before Roe v. Wade got overturned, would have said, yes, I am pro-life. I believe that is a scriptural idea. But just voting for a pro-life candidate isn't really going to do a lot about it. Liberal candidates tend to um, 
promote more sex ed kind of stuff, and that really lowers abortion rates. And liberal folks uh, are more um, gung-ho about social programs that they would say keep people from the financial destitution that a lot of abortion comes out of. And so the best way a liberal person would have said would to, to be pro-life would be to vote for a liberal candidate. And then conservatives on the other side would have said, no, we need to vote for people who, and then this is what ended up happening, who will appoint justices who will overturn this law. All right, all right, let's keep going. I'm not just going to harp on pro-life stuff. That's what you guys thought I was going to do the whole sermon, right? It was just talk about pro-life stuff, church and politics. But anyway, okay, here we go. Let's do student loan forgiveness, okay? Now, biblical clarity. What does the Bible say about student loan forgiveness? It says about debt forgiveness to a very specific group of people, not a universal principle, right? I don't think the Bible says a lot about it. I don't think that you can jump to this directly. Now, it says about other things, right, about taking care of people in need and all that sort of stuff. So I think it's a pretty low on the biblical clarity. I purposely exaggerated it, put it all the way at the bottom. But um, now, a conservative person would say forgiving student loans isn't practical and uh, doesn't really protect human rights. And so we're not gonna, I'm not going to vote for candidates that want to forgive student loans. And liberal folks would look at that same thing and go, okay, maybe the Bible doesn't say a lot about this, but uh, practically, I think this would help a lot of people, and it would pump money into the economy. And I think a lot of these people were, a I'm being a liberal here, right? A liberal would say, a lot of these people would say, um, we gave these hundreds of thousands of dollars of loans to 18-year-olds that we never taught about interest rates and loans in high school. And we kind of abused these people. And so it is kind of a human rights issue. And who took out loans is lower income people. The rich guy with the trust fund, he didn't take out loans. And so this is a human rights issue for liberal people, right? Now, what I need to understand here, again, is we should be able to have that discussion as believers. And you should be able to think this through as a believer on that x-axis. Right? I guess in this one, we can even talk about it. We were just doing it, talking about the, the y-axis there. But all right, this is the last one. Um, uh, extended food stamps, right? So there's an issue that's like, how long should somebody be allowed to be on government assistant? So I put food stamps, but this could be a couple of different kinds of programs that are similar, housing, different things. Um, so do you see this one? We have a difference on the X and the Y axis between conservatives and liberals, right? So I think a conservative would say the Bible is has a principle of we need to take care of those at the bottom of society, but it doesn't say how. And what a lot of conservative people would say is, it's not necessarily the government's job to do this, but it is society's job to do it. And there's other ways besides the government to do this. And so that's why I put it in the middle for a conservative person. And then they would say practicality, leaving people on food stamps for an extended period of time um, creates dependency and all sorts of stuff, right? And then. Uh, the protecting human rights, they would put that over further to the right. They just don't think it's practical. And Tim Keller talks a lot about this in that book we read about um, generous justice and that poverty is complicated and all this stuff. So some of this I'm really oversimplifying. But then a liberal person would look at this, and this is a high to the right on both axis uh, issue for a liberal person. They would say it is practical because we're taking care of people, and it works. And people take that money, and they buy rice for their kids and they buy bananas and vegetables. I don't know what people eat, I just eat McDonald's. But, um, <laughs> right, and it, there are kids who are fed because of these food stamps. And okay, maybe, yeah, they're on it for a long time, 
Great. And maybe some people do abuse it. But because some people abuse it, does that mean we should get rid of the whole system? No, I still think it's practical. This is the liberal guy. And it protects human rights. And so you can see, plotting this out, people coming from different backgrounds are going to have different sort of uh, views on some of this stuff. And we need to learn how to be gracious. Now, here's the application stuff. All right, I made this list. Some of you guys can all take pictures of that with your phone. I think it's in, no, it's not in the thing because I didn't send it to Kayla. Here we go. All right, so in the Sunday booklet, though, we have a bunch of resources, right? Yes. Okay, check out the resources in the Sunday booklet. I want to tell you what they are real quick. There's a sermon, I'm way over my time here. There's a sermon called Jesus and Politics by Tim Keller, and there's another one he did called Arguing and Politics. Both of those sermons are fantastic. Check that out. There's a book called, um, two books. One's called Compassion and Conviction by Justin Gibney and Michael Weir and Chris Butler. Um, that book is just a great overview of a lot of the stuff we talked about today, faith and politics. But the second one is the most important thing I think you could read from this whole topic. Um, it's called The Secular Creed, Engaging in Five Contemporary Claims. And this is by a woman named Rebecca McLaughlin. And have you ever seen those signs that say, um, oh, I forget them. Uh, people put them on their windows. It says, Black Lives Matter, Science is Real, Love is Love. She goes through that sign and engages with all five of those things politically. And the way that she does it, though, um, uh, with grace and love is the way I wish all Christians would think about politics and justice and how we vote and how all that stuff matters. So look at those things. The second thing is, like I said, don't be formed by Babylon around you. The third thing is live at peace, live in peace with the believers who aren't on your political team. You got to understand people bring not just their faith, but they bring their whole story into their life and politics. And I heard a thing where a guy was saying, it's why all of us who are younger look at the World War II generation and their patriotism, and we go, they're so cheesy. But then at the same time, we didn't live through World War II, where that patriotism had a big impact on literally defeating Nazis. And they're coming with a whole story that we don't understand. But then at the same time, they haven't lived through some of the stuff we've lived through, and they don't understand us. And maybe if we thought people are more complicated than just putting them in boxes, we can live with a little bit of grace with each other and understand like Josue's story coming here from another country. He's got a whole different perspective, you know, and you guys on like, I mean, we're kind of from all over on American politics. We all have these different perspectives and we should probably ask each other questions and learn from each other, right? Cause I don't see the world you got, the way you guys do. The, the second, the second to last thing, don't place your ultimate hope in politics. If your guy loses the election and you fall apart, you need to ask yourself why. And that's a sermon for another time. And then the last thing is, pray for our leaders. I said I wouldn't say that, but the Bible says you should pray for your leaders. All right, I'm way over my time. Let's pray for our leaders.